Hey everyone, Chris here, and what you're about to listen to is an RH Gaiden, part of the content that is exclusive to our patrons over at Patreon. So if you want to hear more content like this, and you're just interested in supporting us in general, just head over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash retrohangover, or you can find it at linktree slash retrohangover. That's linktr.ee slash retrohangover. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. another episode of RHP Gaiden. You may have listened to an episode earlier at this point where I was discussing what it was like to grow up gaming in Australia with our two Australian friends that we have in the Discord, Raging Demon and Backlog Adam. Well, today I have another really special episode in that same vein of growing up gaming, international gaming, and I'm with the person who gave me the idea or yeah, I guess gave or I stole. stole. However you want to term stole. it. Okay, we'll go with stole. <laughs> Just shamelessly <And> stole. <laughs> he's been on a guidance before, I hope, which by the time you listened to it was probably outrageously outdated. Sorry. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> everything happens this way. Welcome back to RH Guiden. Ozzy Garcia, it's great to have you here, man. Thanks for having me back, Chris. I I, I guess that it didn't do too bad on the earlier episode. Um, so, you know, hopefully I don't embarrass you on this one. No, I'm just pressed for content, man. That's that's why you're here. I just, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just the filler episode. Uh, <laughs> someday, someday I hope to upgrade to a full episode and not just a guidance. You know, I, I, I have goals to strive for, and that's amongst one of them. Uh, technically... Uh, that that's going to happen in a fashion here in the very near future in terms of recording. You're probably going to be in that facet. Um, and for those who are wondering what I'm talking about, we're recording the King of Games 2000. And, and right now, Ozzy is scheduled to be on an episode that we are hosting. So he will technically be on a mainline episode. Hopefully, he'll really be on a mainline episode in the future, but um, we'll work through that. I'm looking forward to that, man. Someday really I'll, get, I'll, I'll get upgraded to Pro or OLED <laughs> at some point. Um, so, but the by, OLED. By the time of release of this episode, we're probably going to have that beautiful OLED switch on hand, and we're all going to be salivating about it. You're going to see a bunch of Instagram posts. So I'm just being yeah. trendy here, bearing out you know, where this episode, when this episode may get released. Uh, God, who knows? I hope so. I'm, I'm, I'm really recording a lot of guidance here right now and trying to balance it out with the, oh, for uh, what it's worth, I'm including this in my will, just yeah. telling my kids that they should listen to this episode when it releases. That's just one of there my, is. one of my dying wishes. <laughs> Shane, don't kill me. You know, I'm just poking fun right now. Kind of. Um, <laughs> so, so Ozzy is here today because we are doing an episode of what it's like to grow up gaming in Cuba. And I really thought that this was a fantastic opportunity uh, to talk about this because, you know, as as Americans, I think we we have our preconceptions of of Cuba, you know, uh, particularly me growing up in America, growing up in the United States, as I'm sure many of you do. Um, and that's where that's where Ozzy, he grew up uh, before he came over to the United States, obviously. So my, my preconceptions and before we get into it and Ozzy can kind of describe how it really is. 
my preconceptions of Cuba growing up in the United States is kind of what you see in the movies. It's just very poor, very destitute. Uh, um, you know, you just kind of have people running around dirt streets and small villages chasing chickens and <laughs> and not not really have, have much to themselves. And then the cities are just very run down and, and beat up. I know probably not some aspects because you do have tourists, but that wasn't really in the forefront of my mind growing up as as an American and coming into my own and my perceptions of Cuba. So, Ozzy, how about you just set the record straight <laughs> as someone who lived there um, and kind of talk about when you grew up, when you came over and and everything like that? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because if you told that to a Cuban, you'd probably get spit in the face. Because uh, <laughs> one thing that is a defining character trait of Cubans is how proud we are. Um, some would say less... Uh, positively uh, arrogant um, it, it would be a more apt term. Uh, but it's funny because, you know, I, I left Cuba in 1999 and it took us, I'm not going to get into a, a, the story of how I actually left Cuba because one, that's not the purpose of this episode. And two, I don't know if the statute of limitations has run yet on that. Um, but essentially I went through a third country and this was a Latin American country and uh, that was the first time I actually saw naked kids on the street, like full of dirt, you know, begging for money, you know, and I saw people living behind like bars, you know, in their houses because there was so much crime. And to me, that just blew my mind because for Americans, as you just described it, Cuba is nothing more than a quote unquote third world country, which is a very outdated Cold War term. Uh, with poor people running around. And so the way you described it is indistinguishable from any other, you know, Latin American or African country that suffers from poverty. But that really wasn't my experience. Like there was poverty, but growing up, it was a different type of poverty because, you know, it was just a different system. You know, it, it was a communist system. And so, you know, there was a lack of resources, but the people were still highly educated um, everyone kind of had a baseline level of, you know, sustainability in a way. So you didn't see necessarily people running around naked, you know, asking for food like that. That didn't end up being the case. And there was also a great sense of community. Like if you didn't have anything, your neighbor would help. That, of course, has changed over time um, because things have just gotten so desperate and so dire but at least dating back to when I grew up there, that, that wasn't the case. So it's just interesting to hear you, you know, basically, you know, put them on the same, you know, group or category as any other, you know, poverty stricken country like, I don't know, Haiti or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think it's impossible to talk about Cuba without just kind of giving you like a brief Sparknotes version of, of what Cuba actually is. You know, I mean, so it's the biggest island. In the Antilles, uh, in the Caribbean, it's just 90 miles south of Florida, uh, 90 miles south of Key West. Um, so you can get there, you know, by by boat. If you take a flight from Miami, it literally is 30 minutes. You go up and then you go down. It's it's that close. Um, so it's very it's very near to the United States, and that has resulted in a lot of entanglement with the United States over the years. Uh, it was ruled by the Spanish until 1898 when, you know, the Americans got involved in the Spanish-American War. They got Puerto Rico. Cuba was freed, you know, and essentially there was a democratic system inserted there. 
but it was a democratic system that was very closely tied with the United States. And because, again, because of the proximity, there was a lot of economic exchange. There was a lot of import and export. And so there was a lot of progress in Cuba, but also a lot of corruption. And so that's when you saw a lot of proliferation of, uh, you know, the mafia in Cuba. That's, you know, uh, you know, famously you saw in The Godfather 2, Hyman Roth, you know, there's a scene in Cuba and everything. I mean, that there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of the mafiosi were, were actually in Cuba and there was a huge casino culture. And so because of that, that, you know, resulted in a lot of inequality, which eventually gave way to an underground, you know, resistance that eventually turned into a revolution in 1959 under Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro being one of the, he was the leader of, of the movement, and eventually he became the commander-in-chief of, of Cuba. And then after that, after the change in government, Cuba aligned itself with the USSR, the Soviet Union, and essentially went the way of communism. So at, at that point, you were either in one of two pillars. You were either in the Western democratic uh, capitalist system, or you were part of the communist axis or whatever you want to call them, the Iron Curtain in, in a way. And so from the 1960s on, Cuba was communist and they shed almost every kind of influence that was Western as we know it or Anglophone. So, you know, during this time period, if you were caught listening to the Beatles, for example, you could go to prison. Um, so it, it meant that a lot of the media that we got, you know, during that time was Soviet media. It was, you know, things that were approved by the communist government. And so because of that, a lot of the, the Western media did not reach us. But, you know, as we all know, the Soviet Union ended up falling, disintegrating uh, in 1992. I actually remember I was three years old then. And I actually remember, you know, when it happened because I, I saw my 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 sister's husband, my brother-in-law actually, um, you know, mentioned that they hadn't disintegrated. And so that led, you know, to a complete breakdown in the government because Cuba relied so much on, on Soviet uh, support. Um, but it also led to a steady opening of more cultural, you know, uh, infiltration in a way. And so that's when we started getting, you know, more media that was from the U.S. We started getting more music from the U.S. And along this was also video games. We started getting video games during that time. It was a very hard time. I was born in 89. Um, I came to the United States in 99. So that means I was there for 10 years. Um, and it was a very hard time. They called it the special period. Uh, Fidel called it the special period in time of peace. That was the whole description. But for Cubans, we just call it the special period. And, and that was a period where there was a lot of economic depression. There were no resources. A lot of people fled by boat. You know, they, they fled by, uh, by little rafts that they would build. Famously, they, they once left on, on a truck that they converted into a boat. Um, and it was literally a truck boat. Um, so they, they left in any which way that they could, you know, so that they could have a better life. You know, now it's, it's kind of just, you know, a continuation of that. You know, there have been moments of more engagement, like in 2014, and there have been moments of more cultural exchange with Cuba. But right now, as we, as we record this, there is a, a huge, you know, tension over there on the island because of protests, because of COVID, because of, you know, the economic situation because of lack of resources. So so it's a country that it has been slowly deteriorating ever since I left. 
So that's a very, very, you know, Spartanotes version of, of, you know, Cuba. You know, there's, there's a lot of intricacies. It's a, it's a fascinating country, not just because that's where I come from, but it's extremely fascinating because for such a, a small country, relatively speaking, it has had such a huge presence in the international sphere. It's, it's incredible that, that this country has been so important to so many, uh, you know, global events. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have a degree of pride. I consider myself a Cuban American at this point. I've been here now in, in the United States for over 20 something years, um, 22 years this year. Um, so, you know, English right now is my dominant language and, you know, Spanish is of course my native language, but, but, you know, you still feel a lot of pride for Cuba. But but right now, more more than ever, I, I already feel like I'm distancing myself further and further from it. I'm becoming, you know, more acquainted with my American side in a way. So, but, you know, but my background and my cultural identity is still pretty significant to me. So so that's why I find it very uh, uh, fulfilling to have an episode like this to maybe, you know, teach people a little bit more about, you know, what it is like or what it was like. Absolutely. And that just goes back to my perception of that. I didn't mean to insult you or, or no, 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 I'm good. It's just, it's, it's, it's just very interesting how, you know, from an American point of view, certain countries are just slotted into groups. And so they become almost indistinguishable. Um, and, and it's just, it, it doesn't capture the nuances sometimes. And I'm not blaming you. It's just really, honestly, that's, that's kind of what, you know, we get through our media, you know, that's what we see. And so, Certainly, yes. you know, if, if you haven't gone there, um, it's impossible for you to have any other image. So, so yeah. All right. And thank you for, for sharing all that information about Cuba. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, that's going to correct a lot of people's perceptions, certainly that are, that are listening to this, maybe not even just Americans, because we, we do have uh, an international audience, which is, you know, great. And hearing these things about Cuba's I'm sorry, hearing these things about Cuba, um, particularly for a Western audience, like you said, like the media, the Western media created this image, especially particularly in the Cold War, probably even going back to the 1960s, about what Cuba was is just kind of a way to, uh, I don't know, dehumanize them. I, I guess that's a good, for yeah. lack of a better term, uh, that's that's kind of what our media arm would do or to drive sympathy for the Cuban people to look at the Cuban regime as entirely evil. Uh, and, and dehumanize, especially the regime and their leadership on, on all levels. And, uh, and I'm not trying to make any statements beyond that. This is you know, a video <laughs> game podcast. But inherently, yes, the, the, the politics of both the United States and Cuba are diametrically opposed. So there is going to be a political discussion within you know, Cuba and what's it like to grow up in Cuba. And Chris so, and I are not political at all. So this is not going to be an issue. No, of course not. We, <laughs> we did not have a 35 minute political discussion leading up this episode. <laughs> but getting back on track, as you said, you know, the, the video game started coming in after the fall of the Soviet Union. You were three years old. Uh, what was the the first experience that you were able to to play video games living there? Well, I must have been it, it must have actually been just around that time, actually, around three or four um, that I went to my brother in law's house and he had an Atari twenty six hundred. Now, at the time, I didn't know that this was an Atari or whatever the hell it was called. Funnily enough, a bunch of people in Cuba, similar probably to over here in the United States, 
they called any video game system an Atari. <laughs> you know? So, um, wow. so at the very least, we know that 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 was kind of the 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 first system that captured the cultural zeitgeist over there because that's the name that stuck, you know, for a lot of people. But I remember playing this, and it, it was very, very rudimentary. Now, mind you, this was in 1992 already, but I hadn't seen anything else. I just thought it was a game. You know, it was something that you played on the TV. And so, you know, like dots here and there. And so, yeah, it was interesting. You know, it kept my attention for a little bit. But at the end of the day, it, it felt like a toy. You know, and I think that's how a lot of people from our generation, Chris, feel. You know, they're like, yeah, the Nintendo is where I kind of start my gaming journey. Uh, because Atari just seems so much more rudimentary, you know, compared. Um, and so I, I, I only remember that it was an Atari 2600 because it had the controller with the one button, you know, on the joystick. That's that's the only reason why I remember. But, you know, I saw that and then I put it out of my mind. Like, for me, it was like, okay, I played that. It was nice. Um, but the, the first time that I really remember seeing a console for the first time and actually saying, this is amazing. Um, my neighbors, and, and we're going to get into how people actually got to play this consoles and the like, because you couldn't just go to the store and, and buy something. That's something that I guess should be clarified at the outset. In Cuba, there are no stores. You know, The only thing that you have is government-controlled stores that, yeah, they offer some stuff, but it's all produced there or stuff that the government imports into the country. So you can't just go to like a Walmart. There isn't a McDonald's. You can't just go to, you know, any place like a grocery store. There aren't any grocery stores. Um, so you can't just go to a, a, a place and pick up a console like that. That's not how it works. And that's not how it worked back then. And that's not how it works nowadays either. But, you know, my neighbors, they they got a rental, you know, and I'll, I'll go into detail later on to how those rentals worked. They got a rental of uh, of an NES, and it was actually the front-loading NES. I remember it perfectly. And it had the gun, the, the light gun, the sapper, and it had Super Mario Brothers with Duck Hunt, the, the, the hybrid card. And so I remember it so perfectly because it was I, I could tell that that was my first game experience, you know, where I felt like it was memorable. And so I played Duck Hunt. Everybody loved Duck Hunt. Like, even if you weren't into video games, you loved Duck Hunt because it was so easy to understand. You, you grabbed the, the gun and you shot at the screen and then the dog laughed at you. You know, it was just amazing, you know. And and so we played Duck Hunt for a little bit. And then I played Mario Brothers. And, and that's when I realized, oh, man, this is really, really fun. Like, I, I could really get into this. And so from that point forward, I... You know, I, I I saw some games here and there. I saw some consoles. I would see the Super Nintendo every so often. Um, and eventually, you know, my cousins, you know, they got a Super Nintendo and I wanted one. And so by that point, this was 1995. My dad had left the country already. You know, he had left hoping to get us out of the country eventually. And so, you know, after like a year that he had been gone, I, you know, I, I mustered the courage to ask him for a console. And so I, you know, I, I told him and, you know, summer of 96, you know, I remember coming back from like a vacation and, and they told me that the package from my dad had gotten there. And I knew for sure that that's where the console was, that I had gotten the console. And I open it and I see something completely indecipherable to me like i don't even know what this is i've never seen this before hmm. and mind you in cuba we weren't getting any information you don't get commercials you don't get anything and so i'm like i don't know what the hell this is and it said playstation 
and it was the gray box, the the, the first generation one. And here I was asking for a Super Nintendo and I got a, a console that I had no clue what the hell, you know, was, you know. So so I remember I, I asked my neighbor to help me plug it in. I had an old Sony Trinitron, but it didn't have like the RCA ports. So I don't know if, Chris, you experienced this, but you actually had to connect it through your VCR. So you connected the VCR and the VCR had the RCA ports. And so you connected the red, you know, white and yellow into that. And so that's when I, you know, I was actually able to start playing. And my first two games were Need for Speed, the first one. So Road on Track presents Need for Speed and uh, Street Fighter Alpha. So those were the first two games I ever had. Um, and then after that, eventually my dad, my dad visited, you know, in 97. Uh, he brought with him a Game Boy with uh, Link's Awakening and, and Kirby's Dreamland. So I, I that that's how I got my portable gaming. You know, I I got the the first Game Boy I had ever seen, and 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 I got to experience that. Funnily enough, I saw the Game Gear before the Game Boy. You know, weirdly enough, um, there there were actual Game Gears in the wild out there. Um, but but yeah, I mean, and so I became a PlayStation owner. Um, and from that point forward, I kept, you know, I kept buying PlayStation systems. Um, I won with a PS2, but by that point, I was already in this country. Um, but. You know, by the time that I actually left the country, I had to leave everything behind. I, I left my PS1. I left like the, the 15 or so games that I had at the point. At that point, I left my Game Boy, all my Game Boy games. The only thing that I took on my trip, on my jump from Cuba to the United States, was Link's Awakening. And I still have that card. I, I still have Link's Awakening there. And and it's just kind of a keepsake. I, I, you know, I pop it in every once in a while. And it's like the only thing that I left, you know, that I have from my childhood was that. Um, and so eventually that led me to start collecting because I wanted to reobtain everything I had left behind. Um, and so around 2016, I started picking up all the games that, you know, I had left in Cuba. And so, you know, now I'm pretty much complete except for Tecmo Bowl on the Game Boy. That's the only game that I'm missing from the ones I had back then. Um, and actually Kirby's uh, Dreamland too. That's the only other one that I'm missing. Um, but I have that on the eShop, so I'm good. Anyways, that was a rant, <laughs> but that kind of gives you a little bit of a trajectory of, you know, the first consoles I saw and how, you know, eventually I, you know, I became a PlayStation owner, uh, and the like. So going back to the Nintendo, uh, your first experience with the NES, was this an actual NES? And cause the, the, I'm, I'm thinking that a lot of the trade that happened with, with Cuba. Now you're, you're closer to the United States in proximity. So I could see a lot of the black market for Cuba coming from the United States. So I could see the NES being an American NES, but there's also the possibility because, you know, I had the influence from the Soviet Union, USSR and other, you know, uh, Soviet adjacent countries that you might get a Famiclone. So was it a, an American NES or was it more of a Famiclone? Yeah, no, it was an absolutely American NES. Um, and, and, and this leads me into the discussion of how we got systems over there. So again, I mean, you couldn't buy them. So, you know, there were several ways that you could get a system, you know, that were pretty much inaccessible to like 99% of people. Um, one of them was just remittances from family abroad. Like if, if you had a family member that left, you know, they could send you a console back or something like that with someone that made a trip into the country. That was the most, I would say, common way of a system making its way into Cuba. Usually the, the ones that left were the father, you know, so they would leave and they would try to get the, you know, the, the rest of the family out. But during that meantime, you know, 
the, the family would still be there. So you would just get them a console, you know, and, and, you know, send them games every so often. So that's how my cousins, for example, got the Super Nintendo. Their father left like in 94, my father left in 95. And so, hey, you lost your father, but hey, you got a Super Nintendo. Um, so I, I think that's a fair trade. Um, so, wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which by the way, like it was four and a half years before I got to see my dad again. I mean, because it, it took a long time for us to get out, you know, and, and that was a similar experience for my cousins. Uh, but that was the most common way of getting a console. And so, you know, usually, you know, if you got a console, you know, and let's say you outgrew it or you were old enough, what you would end up doing is you would just end up renting this console. And so it would be like 20 Cuban pesos for like two hours of play. And so you would literally haul the entire system with all the cables and, and a few games and you would take it to your home. And, and there would be, I remember, a huge running list on like a, a notepad, you know, of like the reservations. And so it was like filled out for, for days. And so you would have to get on the list in order to be able to rent the console. So that's how most people got to experience it, you know, other than just going to a friend's house who had family abroad and they got a system. The only other way that I could imagine and that I saw was, uh, you know, if you, you know, were a professional that made a trip abroad. So, for example, if you went to Russia um, or you went to Japan or something like that, you know, or you went to Europe, you know, you could get a console there and perhaps bring it back into the country. Um, there were many other things, you know, that were more important than a console that you wanted to bring back, you know, but I don't know, like a fridge or microwave or something like that. You know, so you didn't see that a lot. You didn't see a lot of people bringing in consoles when they went abroad, but but you did see a few of them. And for example, the NES, you know, was not really called an NES in Cuba. It was called the family. And the reason for that is because it was the family computer system. So mm. we just took the first word and, and everyone, even if it was the NES American version, we would still call it a family. So, so, you know, and that was because we got the Famicom with, there were some Famicoms out there and, and, you know, my, some of my best experiences actually on the NES ended up being, you know, on the Famicom. So I don't know if you want me to stop there, but I could keep going, but, 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 you know, feel free. No, no, no. Cause that's, that's interesting. Cause you said that your, your experiences with an NES. So you had, you almost had like a dual uh, console with essentially the same console. So you had some people that had Famicoms or Famiclones or Famicoms and Famiclones. They were probably and, Famiclones. And if I yeah. remember now, they were probably Famiclones and not actual families. So I'm pretty sure that one of the ones that I played was probably a Dendi from Russia. Um, right. You know, and I'm sure that some of them were Famiclones because, in fact, a lot of the, 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 the you know, the NES games and Famicom games that I played were through a multi-card. So I imagine that you know, some of it was actually, and I, I can, I, I couldn't make the distinction back then, but I imagine that some of them were actually clone consoles. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, and, and one of the things, you know, that I vividly recall was I got a lot of experience with the Famicom because my neighbors, you know, and I told the story on, on region free gamers, but you know, there's probably not enough overlap to, you know, to have it be a repeat. But, you know, I remember that they had, um, you know, a Famicom and they had two daughters, you know, and, and me and my brother were two, you know, you know, two, two boys. And and so, right. <laughs> you know, we would go over there and they were cake makers, actually. And so, 
you know, I would go over there just to play and, and, you know, I would get to experience all those games and, you know, and that's, I think the first time that I actually recall, you know, feeling like attraction towards the girl, you know, and it's just kind of connected, you know, to me playing Contra, um, watching this (laughs) and taking like the meringue, you know, with my fingers and being fascinated by this girl that I was really attracted with. Um, so it was a lot of emotions going on at the same time. So when I look back on it, it's just like the Famicom had so many great memories attached to it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, and so on that card, for example, I got to play Contra for the first time. Um, and I also got to experience a lot of games that you guys didn't get here in the States. So for example, like Battle City, which was a Namco game, and it's kind of like a tank game where, you know, you kind of you know, destroy all the various tanks and like different forms of, of, of stages. It has like a bunch of stages and you can actually, if I recall correctly, create your own stage. You can build your own stage. And that game was super fun, you know, but I, I realized only later on that it had never been released here in the States. It was a, a Japan only release. And mm. uh, there was this other game called Circus Charlie, which was released by Konami. Um, and that game was super fun. You basically run on a lion, you know, and, and you jump through fire hoops um or you want to like a like a tightrope and stuff like that and and you know kids used to love that because it was simplistic but you know it still provided enough of a challenge but again i mean i only realized later on that that game was never released here it was actually released eventually as a as a compilation on the ds you know the konami arcade classics but the actual uh, NES never got it. So so I got to experience games that that you wouldn't have gotten here, you know, just by virtue of the of that Famicom or Famiclone experience. And, and I guess that leads me into a follow-up question here. Um maybe it relates back to something you kind of said before that there's there's really no stores you can go out and buy stuff. So and it sounds like there really was no standardization in terms of technology in Cuba because I'm thinking you're you're allied for the most part for and by the time like you were playing video games it was there was no more soviet union but for much of the history of yeah of of cuba it was aligned with the soviet union so it was uh, you know soviet union more aligned with with european technology regardless if they got along or not and i don't know enough about russia so i might be talking out of my ass here and i apologize (laughs) if i am but it there's always the difference of conversion between PAL and NTSC, and I kind of talked to this uh, with the Aussies about uh, PAL and NTSC because they're certainly on the PAL. It seems like um, if you guys were able to get TVs, and I don't want to sound like you weren't able to get TVs because obviously you would have been able to. Uh, I just don't know really how, and I'm sure you go into that. But you were more on the NTSC uh, way of playing games. So like all every like like you said, the Famicom was like. Japanese games, which you also had the American NES, and there was no real conversion considerations. And then when you got your PlayStation, you had a Sony Trinitron, which assumedly would be NTSC, or else you wouldn't have been able to hook it yeah. up. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was NTSC. I, I I couldn't tell at the time. I couldn't know the difference. Like that was beyond me. It, it would take like right, right, twenty right. more years after that for me to you know be able to <laughs> make these distinctions. But but yeah, I mean, and, and and for example, that Sony Trinitron, it was brought by my my grandma. My grandma actually left the country in '67, um, and then she came back in '82, um, and she stayed there permanently. She she actually was one of the few Cubans that left permanently to the United States and then came back and stayed permanently in Cuba. Um, and a big reason for that is because my dad stayed behind, 
And she kind of felt guilty that, you know, she had, you know, left her youngest son, you know, like all that time. And so she came back and she brought, you know, that Sony with her. Um, so that's how I remember getting that. T- well, I don't remember because this was an 82. Like she came back in 82. I was right. born in 89. But that's what they told me she did. So, so yeah, it was definitely an American TV. And, and I don't remember. There were probably issues with conversion. But I don't remember dealing with them at all, you know, because... If I played a system in, in one house, it was with a TV that naturally played that. So I couldn't tell whether it was 50 hertz or 60 hertz, you know, and the technology, as you say, was all over the place. You know, there was no uniformity at all whatsoever. Um, and let me tell you, you haven't really played Super Mario Brothers until you play it on a 1950s Russian TV. Like that's <laughs> that's the real way to play Super Mario Brothers. Uh, black and white with the little four legged, you know, you know, the four wooden legs. Um, with just, you know, you have to tune it, you know, to get it just right with, uh, with the RF, uh, port, you know, that's, that's how you really play this, uh, these games. So, so yeah, no, no standardization whatsoever. Other avenues that that may that that I have questions about here, um, even before we get into brands in terms of like Sega versus Nintendo and stuff like that, uh, microcomputers were big in Europe, and you know of course PC gaming's big big everywhere. Was there anything like the, uh, in Cuba like that, like any Commodore sixty fours that you remember, uh, ZX Spectrums, not at all. or just PC no, gaming? Yeah, not at all. I mean, if there were, they were um, work you know, uh, computers, there mm-hmm. was no personal computer, like, like a personal, you know, PC that you would use. There wasn't any of that until like the mid two thousands, um, when, you know, the Cuban people started getting laptops from abroad and stuff like that, where technology was cheap enough and ubiquitous enough where it was affordable to actually send laptops to Cuba. Uh, but during the nineties, they were just not, I mean, I, I remember that the only PC, you know, that there was out there was kind of like in the, in the informatics center, like the, the, uh, computer science center. And I got some typing classes there and stuff like that as a kid. And that was the first time I ever saw a PC before that. I didn't even know what they looked like, you know, and I didn't identify consoles as PCs. I, just, I saw them as something else. You know, they were more like a VCR than a PC in my mind. Um, and, and yes, I did have VCRs, you know, so that was, although, you know, funny story, you know, there, there was actually just as many Betamax players as there were VCRs over there in Cuba. So it was, it was funny that I remember watching Waterworld and Betamax, you know, and, and Waterworld on Betamax was on two tapes, which if you have to play Waterworld with two tapes, then, you know, you're doing something wrong with your life. Um, <laughs> so, um, just a nice little digression there. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the only way that people got PCs was, you know, during the universities, you know, in the universities and the like. So, you know, eventually, and this is something that, you know, we can talk about later, but eventually the PC became a better way for lay people that didn't have family abroad to play video games because they could go to college, you know, they could go to university and there would usually be a PC there or something, and they could play games like Age of Empires or Warcraft or something like that because it was so much easier to pirate. You know, you could just have a, 
a copy, you know, and, 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 you know, play it, you know, and if someone had a copy, then, then that, that was it. Um, but you know, we didn't get the internet until like the early 2000s or so. Um, so you couldn't like download things and the like. Um, so what people would do is that they would have like, you know, they would copy discs, you know, someone would bring it, you know, they would bring the game and then they would just make copies of that game ad infinitum, you know, so it would be spread like a virus across the entire country. And, I know, for example, that Age of Empires was a huge game there. You know, like people loved that game. Um, and that was because it was very present in uh, university campuses. Um, so you didn't really have a PC gaming scene. And y you only had people that were able to play this, you know, because, you know, they were, you know, they had a PC at work or they had a PC in, in, in the university or the like. Yeah, I, I guess that's what, what my question more so was gravitating towards with the microcomputers and because those computers were very, very easy to pirate. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't hard to make a copy and just put it everywhere. Especially, I think it was either a Commodore or the ZX Spectrum. It was older technology. But I think the problem was that it was it was technology from the eighties predominantly, and, right. and and during that time we weren't getting those that type of technology into the country. You know, we weren't necessarily getting anything like imported from from the UK, for example. Um, so, so that's probably why that we makes sense. So why we didn't see like, you know, like the, the ZX or, or the Commodore or the like, uh, because they were British microcomputers. Um, so I, I would assume that that's the reason why. Right. And anything that was being made and produced in the UK was definitely not getting over to Russia. Exactly. Not even exactly. clone wise, because probably be too expensive. Okay, it was a different sense. time back then. Like, I mean, after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, all of that started seeping in. But during, you know, the time of the Iron Curtain, like really there was no engagement at all, you know, between the Western world and, and the Soviet Union. So I, I, I'm not surprised that we didn't get those. I mean, look, is there probably one out in the wild over there? I, I imagine so. Um, but I didn't see one at the very least. Now, was there any sort of brand competition? Was there or was it just kind of Nintendo dominated and then Sony dominated or just kind of had a hodgepodge? of you know kind of whatever you could get you could get because you did say you saw game gear first but you ended up with the game boy yeah so I was mean, there any sort of semblance of that like the the console wars not not really there wasn't any console war per se i mean you were just happy with whatever console you got well right yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> but like brand competition but, like but you know it, yeah. it, it, it ironically followed kind of a similar track as the u.s because the u.s the Super Nintendo dominated. I mean, you could say that the Genesis got very close, but the Super Nintendo was kind of the leading console during that generation. And I think, you know, you definitely saw a lot more Super Nintendos out in the wild. I only saw a Genesis once. And, uh, you know, mind you, I, I lived in not a very populous area of Cuba. I mean, I lived in the westernmost province. It's right next to Havana, but you know it's it's much more rural than than Havana is. So I wasn't getting a very accurate perspective of how much was coming into Cuba, you know, because I was a little bit further removed from Havana. Um, but I only saw one Genesis once, and I don't remember if it was the Mega Drive or the Genesis. I don't I don't know which one it was. I think it was the Genesis, but I remember specifically what game was on it, and and that was Streets of Rage. And it was only later after I arrived here that I got to play Streets of Rage on the Dreamcast Genesis compilation. I forgot what it was called. 
And Sega Smash Pack. Sega Smash Pack. That's the one. And uh, and I saw Streets of Rage, and I was like, oh, my God, this is the game that I had seen back in the day. And it was like an eye-opening moment because it was just the most awesome thing. Back in the day, I saw that, and I was just like, this is really, really cool. So I saw Streets of Rage. I also saw uh, Revenge of Shinobi, and I also saw Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, that day. Um, and I didn't get to play it. I just saw people playing it, but it was just like that was enough for me. But that was the only time that I actually saw Genesis. You would definitely see many more Super Nintendos, and if there was anything that was being rented out, it was usually the Super Nintendo. And I think a big reason for it as well was because there were so many fighting games in the Super Nintendo, and fighting games were super popular with the kids. I mean, as as you would <laughs> imagine, oh, yeah. and as you saw here in the United States as well. You know, the funny thing about it is that over here, Street Fighter was huge. You know, over there, Street Fighter was big. You know, people knew about it. But at the end of the day, you know, there were other more popular fighters. And one of those was Killer Instinct. So when people talk about Killer Instinct here in the United States, it's kind of almost in a derisive manner as a, as a Me Too kind of fighter. Whereas I come from, you know, the perspective of, man, this was the game to play. You know, like people will learn like 45 hit combos with Orchid, you know, like my cousin once pulled it off and I like I still worship to do it because of it. You know, so <laughs> um, so so it was funny to see that some games gain more traction than others, um, not necessarily one to one. Um, with the U.S. and and for example, we got we got SNK games for the Super Nintendo, but we wouldn't call them SNK games. We would call them Takara games because Takara was the one that published the games on the Super Nintendo. And so, I remember playing World Heroes, you know, and and that was a really fun one. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you can't understate how big fighting games were. Like that was the big reason why people wanted to play. Um, the Super Nintendo, and and you would have like tournaments, you know, and all the kids from the area would, you know, huddle and 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 similar to what you would see here in an arcade, you got that at homes. You know, there was one home that had the console, and tournaments would form there. And I don't know how, but they would figure out all the moves just organically because there was nothing, you know, to tell them, hey, you know, this is how you pull off this move or that move. You know, so um, it just blows my mind how. You know, even in a country that's completely isolated, you still got a reproduction of the same experience that you would get here, but in a different context. Yeah, that is that is pretty fascinating uh, because I mean, you obviously you wouldn't have access to video game magazines. That wouldn't be EGM was not going to Cuba. No, no so not at all, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, one person probably came back from playing the arcades. I can imagine in. The quarter circle forward legend <laughs> began and people worked from there. I mean, that, I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, word of mouth was kind of how things happened before the Internet anyway, I think, regardless of where you lived. Absolutely. It was a pre-Internet era, I mean, over here as well. So so you still saw Obviously, a lot of that organic yeah. growth. You know, it just takes one person to figure out before it spreads like wildfire. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so you left in 99, you left all, all your games behind. You had the PlayStation. Yeah, and, and, and let me let me tell you a little bit more about the PlayStation. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> because I was, this was 96, this was August of 96. Um, I remember because it was just a week out from me starting school, and school started like around the 20th or so. Um, and uh, I was fascinated by it, but but I was probably the the first adopter in my province of the PlayStation. You know, and one of the big reasons why you want to get a certain console as a kid is because, 
you know, if other people have the same console, you can trade with them and you can exchange games and stuff like that. But I couldn't do that because I was probably the only one in the in the territory that had a PlayStation one. And, and you know, to my father, maybe he was like, oh, they have the latest technology. It's amazing. But to me, I was like, I don't care about that. I just want to play, you know, what my friends are playing. And so I was kind of a. a, a resigned in a way to own a ps1 um i i i always coveted and wanted the super nintendo instead and tried several times to exchange my ps1 for a super nintendo unsuccessfully unsuccessfully (laughs) um even though i was offering them like a bunch of games all these games had like fmvs and stuff like that and i don't know what it was back then but I just love the sprite work of the Super Nintendo, and and even without any frame of reference in my mind, I I found the Super Nintendo games to look better than the PlayStation One games. You know, and, and you know I'm I'm still a, a you know very nostalgic about the PlayStation, probably even more so now than when I was in Cuba. But I I, I wanted the the Super Nintendo so bad because I saw the graphics as just cartoon like, and that's what I I gravitated to as a kid, and so. That PlayStation actually, because it was one of the early models, probably ended up dying within two years because of the overheating issues. Um, mm-hmm. That was a defect that was present in almost all of the PlayStations, you know, that came out in the first two years. Yeah, um, the first it, run. It, it had an overheating issue, and so the disc would start skipping. And so how you would start noticing it is because the FMVs would start skipping. So if you managed to skip the FMV, maybe you got lucky enough you know, to get to the actual gameplay part, but eventually it would just completely die. And so I remember that in order to get it to play, I tried to figure out everything. Eventually I started playing with the PlayStation upside down. And I feel oh. like that was also very common over here. The people did that, did that as well over here. So I figured out that, hey, you know, it seems like it plays better if I turn it upside down. So I would put it upside down. Um, and, you know, and I couldn't like call Sony and being like, hey, you know, give me a replacement. This thing is defective. Um, so I was stuck with my PlayStation. And it was around that time that I tried unsuccessfully like a third time to pawn it off, you know, to someone that would give me a Super Nintendo. But, you know, I was still unsuccessful. So... You know, but I but I had a lot of cool games. I mean, uh, like I said, I had um, you know Street Fighter Alpha and Need for Speed. They were the first two games. Need for Speed actually, that was how I got to to know cars. Like it had like a car showcase, and so I did not know anything about cars because we didn't get any new cars over there in Cuba. And so that's how I found out about the Lamborghini, Ferraris, Porsches, Corvettes, stuff like that. So that was kind of my encyclopedia at the time. And then I also got the third game I got was Mortal Kombat 3. Um, was never good at it, so I didn't play much of it. Um, could never pull off a fatality. I would just play it so that the the, the AI would you know do a fatality on me. Um, and uh, eventually I got Wipeout, which I know is one that you know we usually have conversations back and forth uh, about. But that was the fourth game I got Wipeout, um, and that one was pretty cool, hard as balls. So I couldn't really get very far. Um, but, but it was good. And, and, you know, and, and from those, I mean, there were a, f- a few other ones like Bloody Roar 2, um, uh, Tiger Shark, which is a game that nobody remembers. Um, uh, Perfect Weapon, which was an awful, awful game, you know, and, and that's the thing. Like if you got an awful game, but that was the new game you got, you know, think about how it was as a kid where you got that one game, 
you know, and that's the game that you had to play. Well, multiply it times like 10 because you never, you, you don't know when you're going to get another game. Like it's just, it's up in the air when you're going to get another game. <laughs> so, um, so I had to play perfect weapon, which by the way, please don't play perfect weapon. It's horrible. Um, so anyways, just, just a few scatter memories here and there. So that actually brings up a couple, couple points that I'm thinking about through that conver- through that, uh, conversation there. So what about the PlayStation? It was it was hard to kind of pawn off. You're trying to exchange it for a Super Nintendo. And when I'm hearing that, it kind of goes back to a previous point you made where you were like, you know, the sense of community among people who had these systems. So if everyone has a Super Nintendo, like you're feeling you're out of the the mix because you don't have a Super Nintendo. So that could probably be a reason why a lot of other people didn't want it. It was just easier to trade games, get new experience, get new games, everything like that. You don't have to spend a lot of money. Families were probably very encouraging of that. So they, you know, didn't have to ship off games to their kids and they could just, you know, kind of swap games amongst each other. So, yeah, I could see how trading a, a PlayStation, which in 96 was was still new, even in the United States, uh, and, and probably very hard for a lot of people to get. So yeah, but I felt like very much like an outcast. Like it was yeah, you know, like I I would tell people what I had, and it was it would be like a blank stare. And so I would have to, you know, bring people over to my house and be like, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, look, look at this thing. And then the disc would start skipping, and then I would be like embarrassed. <laughs> <So> <laughs> they didn't have that issue with the Super Nintendo. Um, but but let let me just be clear. I mean, this wasn't something that like even like even like 20% of families had i would say probably like 3% of families maybe had a console you know like it was right, very right. very small you know but if someone had a console you just had to trade like there there was no other way like you you had to give in to this community of trading you know because otherwise you weren't getting anything new you know until you know someone else you know sent something your way you know um, but, but yeah, and if I mean, everyone had a super Nintendo, then the trade economy would demand that you had a super Nintendo. Oh, they, they didn't absolutely. want your PlayStation. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of it was, you know, again, similar to what happens here. It's like, uh, just clueless parents over here, you know, thinking that, Hey, you know, I'm going to send them this, you know, it seems like it's cool or this seems like it's cheaper. Um, and then when you get it, you're like, oh, it's not what I really asked for, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but you know, you just kind of suck it up, you know? And, and by the way, I don't want to be ungrateful about this. I, I love the fact that I got the PlayStation and I don't know what I would have been like if I had had a Super Nintendo instead, I probably would have been one of those really obnoxious Sega, like, like Zelda fanboys. And I, I, <laughs> I'm glad that I didn't go that way. So thank you, dad, you know, thank you for not making me that person. Um, so I don't know, but yeah, man, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different experience. So, but you know, I was happy with my PS one. I got to play a lot with my brother. I, I would eventually end up playing my game boy a lot more than I did my PS one, you know, one, because of this keeping issues. But the other reason is because I had a strict one hour time limit to play the PlayStation. And so the game boy was the one that I would play. Um, and, and that's, that brings to mind another anecdote, which is that we didn't get batteries in Cuba. There weren't any double A batteries in Cuba. And if you recall, the first Game Boy brick was like six batteries. So it was, it was a fucking battery guzzler. 
Um, and so what we used to do was we needed to have a battery charger. So, I, you know, I would just have to recycle my battery. So I don't know if, in your experience here in the United States, whether you guys use battery, you know, chargers, but, but that's how I had to do it. So you, you couldn't get disposable batteries. You had to get rechargeable batteries. So, so that's how I played my, my Game Boy and probably the reason why I ended up having to wear glasses at six. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. We had rechargeable batteries, but they didn't, they were kind of a fad which is unfortunate. It'd been nice to kind of have more permanent rechargeable batteries. I think they would have been better overall, but yeah. One man's fat is another man's treasure. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So Uh, the second point you brought up that I found fascinating, and and maybe this is a follow on question, maybe into more so Cuba today or, or since is that you were talking about need for speed and how it opened up your discovery to cars, uh, foreign cars outside of Cuba. Uh, Video games really came into their own, with the you know the playstation at least internationally so at some point like the playstation or the n64 or more modern consoles would have made their way to cuba one way or another i mean the super nintendo games stopped being made uh you know the world became smaller stuff would end up going to cuba more and more do you think the fact that video games just just had more culture just had themes uh that were more global uh, the Iron Curtain lifting, less support going to Cuba. Do you think that had any impact on Cuban culture whatsoever uh, through your interactions that you you still somewhat maintain with the island? No, not video games per se. I think movies definitely had a huge influence. Uh, movies and music were pretty big, you know, and, and kind of changing the culture. Um, you know, strangely enough, my impression is that video games were more popular, ironically, in the 90s than they were you know, afterwards, um, because most people ended up just playing video games on PCs and stuff like that. And, and the people that played on PCs were a particular, you know, subculture, you know, they were probably in like computer science or something like that. And, and yeah, people, you know, got consoles, like some families got consoles, but it, it seemed to me from the outside looking in at that point that, that it wasn't, you know, that big of a focus anymore, you know, after I left. I think part of it was that it was the big, you know, cool new thing, you know, during the 90s. And and then after that, it was kind of like, yeah, this is something for for kids. So, you know, if, if you weren't a kid, you were playing something that was more like meaty, like a strategy game or something like that on a PC. Um, but, but strangely enough, like a video game culture never really went beyond, you know, that nascent experience that I had back in the 90s. Um, Or at least it seems to me that way. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But, you know, the fact that we haven't seen, you know, an actual finished indie game come from Cuba, you know, part of it is the fact that they don't have the resources. So that's one thing. They don't really have, you know, accessible internet or the like. But the other is that there there really doesn't seem to be too much of a culture there. There was... um, one game developer, one developer in Cuba that was building a game and it got a lot of publicity. It was, it had a feature, you know, published in Polygon. But I, I know I checked the other day and he still hasn't finished the game. So it, it just seems to me like video game culture never really took off afterwards, you know, after I left. Um, you know, people played Grand Theft Auto or they played, you know, some of the other PC games. And ironically, I find that part of it may be because PC gaming kind of died as well, you know. Um, you know, a lot of people are probably going to find that offensive, but certainly PC gaming from what it was in the nineties to the early 2000s, is not the same anymore. 
And, you know, some of the PC games that were coming out, you know, most of them were running on on video cards that weren't, you know, there in Cuba. So they probably couldn't really run the stuff that was coming out. So so I, I figured that that was probably one of the reasons why I just never really, you know, went beyond that. So, so no, I, you know, to, to answer your question in a short way, I, I don't think the video games had too much of an impact ultimately, you know, as things developed, could there be eventually down the line if there is more exchange? Yeah, I think so. Most likely. Um, but there's also another situation, which is that a lot of people from my generation ended up leaving the country. So the people that stayed in Cuba are not necessarily people that have family abroad that they could receive a system from. So, you know, the, the means that we used to have in the 90s are no longer available, you know, to some of the people that are there now. You know, so so it's it, it's a different circumstance now that's preventing it from growing further. Are there any other particular anecdotes you want to bring up? Because I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of questions I would ask you, but I think they more pertain to a follow-up episode. So if you have any particular anecdotes, uh, particularly about how you see it progressing and, and where you see it now as, yeah. Uh, yeah, as opposed mean, to where it was when you were in the 90s. Yeah, the only other thing that comes to mind is you know, how we actually got game news or, or learned of new games. Um, you know, we, we didn't get commercials, so we didn't learn of, of games you know, that way. Um, but game demos were huge, you know, game demos. If someone got a game demo, that was, that was worth its weight in gold more than any other game, because it wasn't just one game. It was 12 games, you know, or whatever the case may be. And so, for example, the PlayStation underground games, eventually when people started having more PlayStations, you know, I started seeing a few more PlayStations out in the wild, um, you know, the game demos were big and that's actually how I got to experience, Metal Gear Solid for the first time, you know, I got to experience Medieval. That was the first time I saw it. And even like some very obscure PS1 games like Blasto or Jersey Devil. If you remember that, then you're probably like (laughs) really into that type of platformer at the time. Um, So that's how, you know, you kind of got to experience some of those games. And I remember uh, playing Bloody Roar, and that's how I eventually ended up asking my dad, you know, if he could send me Bloody Roar. And so he sent me Bloody Roar too. You know, he struck out again in sending me what I was asking for, but he he sent me something that was supposedly better, you know, and and that was Bloody Roar too. Um, so I, I kid. I mean, I, I again, I very much appreciate that that you know he he did that. He's um, trying his best, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He was he was trying his best. You know, he was fucking you know running you know, around here trying to get us out of the country and in the meantime, send a fucking game to his kid over in Cuba. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and so so that's how I got to experience a lot of games. And eventually those games that I got to see when I came to this country, you know, those were the games I was looking for. It was like, okay, I saw that game back in the day. You know, I want to get it now. And, and right now, the PlayStation 1 is probably the most sizable collection that i have and it's not too much of a secret that it's probably because i'm trying to you know have what i didn't have back then you know uh so so a big part of it you know eventually i came you know i i I graduated from law school i i got a a good job you know and i so i I had disposable income and so a, a big part of it you know was just trying to have what i didn't have as a kid growing up and and that's 
probably the biggest reason why I am a collector nowadays, even though I barely have time to play games nowadays, I still collect, I still get new games. And probably it's because I want to I wanna fill that hole in some way of not having growing up and now being able to just have that, you know, there, there's a primal kind of experience that goes along with it and a primal kind of instinct that, that kicks in, you know, that makes you want to just have what you didn't have as a kid. So, um, yeah. And so, you know, beyond that, I mean, the, the only other way to get like information on games is it was just like through the game inserts, like, you know, EA used to be pretty good about that. They would have like a catalog of games. So that's how I learned about Bullfrog. That's how I learned about like, you know, like origin systems, like wing commander, stuff like that. Um, and also, you know, especially with those old long boxes, you would get full adverts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I remember it was one of the long boxes that I saw one of those there. Um, and, and it's funny because I would only see like a screenshot, a very tiny screenshot of the game. And so, uh, and I couldn't read English, of course. Um, and so I would make in my mind a whole, you know, idea or game concept of what this game was about. Um, and I would dream about them and I would, you know, make up this entirely fictional games from, from games that, you know, you know, from games that, that, you know, if you had seen a commercial or you had seen it, you know, like some gameplay of it, you would know what it was like, but I had none of that. So, so I just had to make up a game in my mind, you know? Um, and, and yeah, and every once in a while you would get like a magazine. Like the first time that I ever read Portuguese was with a Brazilian magazine, you know, that was a game magazine and, and I, I couldn't read Portuguese, but for some reason being a young kid, you know, and, and having that malleable brain, I was able to read almost everything, even though it wasn't in my native language. Um, and that, I remember that's how I first learned of the existence of the Sega Saturn. Um, because the Saturn, if, if there weren't, you know, PS ones there, I can affirmatively confirm that there were no Saturns whatsoever in Cuba. (laughs) Well, there are no Saturns in the United States either, apparently. So, so yeah, (laughs) so that's, that's how I learned of the Saturn and, and, and I didn't get to see a Saturn in the flesh until like my twenties, man. But, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, that's just kind of a few scattered, you know, thoughts you know about growing up you know in cuba and 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 the like and you know it's i'm i'm appreciative of having had that experience you know would i wish it on my kids no not necessarily you know but but it 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 built a certain character It, it gave me a certain identity that you know has helped me as an adult you know in a way um not necessarily the game part but just having that experience of not having much you know so so I, I appreciate it in a way. And, and and to be honest, I was one of the lucky ones. I mean, I had a I had a, a father in, in the United States, you know, for, for a good chunk of time. And I was much better off, you know, than than everyone around me, uh, a lot of the people around me. And, uh, you know, it's funny because then I came to this country and then I had to go on food stamps, you know. So so it, it kind of flipped, you know, overnight, you know. Um, so. Yeah, man. I mean, it's it's a definitely a, a, a memorable experience to say the least. One thing I want to briefly touch on, and then we can we can start looking to wrap this up, unless it goes on another tangent here, which I'm absolutely fine with. You were talking about how you you would read the inserts, you would read the instructions, and you couldn't read English. Um, one of the things that that helped my kids uh, learn how to read really well was playing Skylanders because it had the words on the screen. It had. Um, just a lot of the instructions were there that they could associate with words. So it helped them read. 
Now, were you able to pick up, you said you could learn a little bit of Portuguese uh, by through and via video games. Did you somehow learn any English or any other foreign languages through video games themselves? Or was no, it just kind of like yeah, very no. basic? No, no. I mean, and, and, and it brings me back to another anecdote. You know, I really wanted to get ahead in Link's Awakening. But I was just missing something. I didn't really know what to do. And so I got my aunt who actually, you know, knew, wasn't fluent, but she knew English. And I got my aunt to start translating Link's Awakening. And it didn't get me any closer you know, to figuring right. it out. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, I, I tried because I wanted to know so bad, you know, what they were saying. Um, and when I got to this country, I, I had zero knowledge, man. I, I just absolutely nothing. I remember, uh, you know, I went into fifth grade and it was September of 1999. So, you know, the, the, the class had already started for some time, you know, it had already been like a month since class had started. And I just came into this new classroom and, and they started talking to me in English and I, I had no clue what they were saying. So, so I think that at that point, video games did end up starting to be, you know, a tool, you know, to assist me in learning the language. Because the way that I learned the language was really through movies and video games. You know, like movies, I would I would watch movies with closed captions. You know, I would watch them in English, but with closed captions. And I would just like figure out what they were trying to say. So, you know, I was fully immersed in it. And that's how I can't remember the, the exact moment where I felt like, okay, I know English. But just through like osmosis, it just came to me. So, so that wish you're saying, I didn't get in Cuba, but I got here when I was actually forced to learn English. And, and I, I learned English in less than two years. I was out of ESOL in less than two years. So, you know, ESOL for the international uh, audience is English as a second language. It's a special program you get put into when, when you don't know English here in the States. And so, so yeah, I mean, in a way they helped in that, in that sense. Um, but for example, like I couldn't play RPGs, you know, at all because they were so story driven and, and they were so heavy on the systems, you know, and all the systems were in English. So I couldn't really figure out what to do. So I, I didn't really get to play a full blown RPG until much later in my life. You know, I was certainly a teenager by then. So so it's a very different experience, for example, from, from you growing up playing Final Fantasy 1 on the NES. Like, I, I didn't have any of that, you know. Would I have been intrigued by Final Fantasy had I played it and, and, and understood it as a kid? Probably, but I didn't get that until much later. So I have a different kind of background from, like, a lot of the gamers that have a very soft spot for the JRPGs that they played as a kid. What's your favorite genre today? I don't have the, I don't have one, man. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to tell. I would probably say the only games that still hook me, you know, and and I kind of, you know, spend hours and hours upon. It, it's computer RPGs, you know, in the vein of you know The Witcher Three or Skyrim. You know, I started playing Oblivion back in the day, and and even Morrowind before that, and and those were the games that, you know, eventually down the line, they hooked me, you know, and, and, and those were the games that I like to get lost in. But nowadays, it's kind of all over the place, honestly. I, I Honestly, my favorite genre nowadays are short games. That's my absolute favorite genre, you know? Like, if you give me a short game, even if it's shit, I, I will play it, you know, because I, I just don't have that amount of time anymore. 
Um, so I, I can't really say that I have one genre in particular, but anything that allows me to get lost in a world, you know, that, that works for me. And honestly, that's part of the reason why I'm not as big of a fan of JRPGs. It's because yes, there's this whole world and the like, but to me, JRPGs have a lot more barriers than Western RPGs. You know, they, they, they have a lot more artificial barriers and, and it's kind of like you have to play it a certain way, you know? So, so uh, yeah, I come from a different kind of approach to it. So, so Western RPGs probably would be the ones that I'm most interested in nowadays. But even now, I mean, you see games like Assassin's Creed implementing like RPG mechanics and stuff like that. Like I don't have time for that shit, you know? So, <laughs> so, so it all depends. Like I'm not going to be playing Assassin's Creed anytime soon. So, um, so, so it varies, but you know, more more than anything nowadays, man. I mean, and, and as you know from the Discord, I just like to play like weird shit that no one knows about. You know, like I death by degrees, man. Yeah, <laughs> death by degrees. A, a death by degrees, abs- absolutely, man. Like I, <laughs> you know, my collection now is at like I don't know, man. I mean, like two thousand five hundred or so uh, wow. physical games. Um, you know, I don't know what's gonna happen when my kid is born. Which by the time this releases, she will have been born. Um, but you know, I I I I'm more fascinated nowadays with the history of gaming, and that's why I was so interested in, in launching Region Free Gamers with the crew. And and if you if you hear my episodes when I was part of the team, like they are you know very heavily focused on the history of it and and the history of how this was developed because nowadays, you know, the preservation aspect is what interests me most: preserving the history, preserving the knowledge you know, preserving the experience. And so, you know, you find me just testing out a bunch of different shit all the time. So Friday nights, like my habit is just to like test out shit. And so that's how I end up playing like the Dukes of Hazzard 2, Daisy Dukes it out, you know, which is horrible. <laughs> Don't ever play that game, please. Um, but it was there. And so I, <laughs> I tested it out. Um, and so I just like, playing different stuff you know that that eventually if i find a hidden gem you know metal jesus word um you know it's just kind of gems <laughs> it's just like a nice surprise when i find something that no one knows about and i can be like hey have you played this game and everyone's like i don't know what the hell it is um so so yeah well that was a real digression so i'm sorry <laughs> no that's that's fine man absolutely but I, that does kind of bring us i think in to the end of this episode it's it's a little over an hour and uh hey man thank you so much for sharing your story i think that is it's it's really eye-opening uh for myself to to hear this story about what it's like to grow up in cuba uh to 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 be a gamer and the gaming experiences you had there and i'm pretty sure a lot of people listening to this episode just uh they they haven't heard this before and so this these these anecdotes of yours, I understand, is just you as as an individual. It doesn't represent every Cuban, obviously, but it it provides a lot of valuable insight to to people who are just curious about what it's like growing up in other areas of the world. So thank you very much, Ozzy. I do appreciate it. Yeah, man. I mean, this is the purpose of this whole thing. It's just sharing different experiences. You know, like you said, it's not necessarily representative of everyone out there um but it's just one experience and if if anyone you know learns something new then i think it was worth it thank you so before we officially wrap this up ozzy do you 
have anything left you want to say where people can find you on the internet if you want them to, whatever the case might be, in case this episode goes beyond our patrons? <laughs> I am a ghost on the internet. Um, no, I mean, honestly, <laughs> where I'm most present nowadays is on the Region Free Gamers Discord. Um, I don't go on Instagram anymore. I used to be a prolific poster, and in fact, Region Free Gamers came out through Instagram. Um, but you know, I just got fed up with the whole like influencer bullshit and, and people posting up the same Zelda game over and over again. Um, <laughs> topical. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I'm not very active on that. If, if you want to follow me there, my, my handle is shadow of the collector with periods in between those words. Um, but you know, you can find me on the RFG, uh, discord. I'm also occasionally on the retro hangover podcast discord, um, as RFG Aussie. Um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes I chime in, you know, and, and I argue with Chris about Wipeout, um, but you know, it's all in good fun. <laughs> and of course, yeah, check out, uh, region free gamers. You've probably heard a lot of them by this time with the King of games 2000. And if you haven't, it's probably going to be releasing very soon. So, uh, check them out as well. And yeah, here he is. He's one of the founding members, one making it very possible for, that connection to happen and he's definitely in the background i'm still under contract with them i'm still under contract with them i still have to publicize them and anything i go so yes uh <laughs> please listen to region free gamers it's great podcast i am very happy <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah no the, the rfg crew is great so so definitely go listen to them and i'm very proud of of what was put together and i'm happy that they've carried on the torch you know even after i decided to abandon them <laughs> Good stuff, man. Once again, thank you very much. And thank you all for being patrons and listening to this. And in case this has made it outside of Patreon. Uh, also, thank you for listening to this. We we do appreciate it. And uh, hey, that that's really all I'm going to leave on this episode for today. Make sure to check out our Discord if you're not a patron. We'd love to see you there. And there's all sorts of other things you can find if you go to linktr.ee slash retro hangover. But that's all I have on this episode of RH Guidance. So until next time, play with your cigar smoking joysticks. Have a good one, everybody.